I'm so glad you're listening. Today, we're talking about building power. We're talking about building change. And we're talking about how we can invest in our very youngest learners from birth to age three and beyond to help make sure that we have return on investments that really lift our families and our economy and allow every child to thrive. So we talk about policies related to childcare, related to paid family medical leave and the child tax credit and how in the super duck session that's going on in Congress right now, we can move those policies forward and lift everyone. Then we dive into the new inflation numbers and job numbers and all things economy and how that impacts you and what's changed in our economy in terms of worker power and how worker power is essential for an inclusive multiracial democracy. After that, we touch base on what's happening with maternal health. And McV, you're going to have to listen to that segment to find out what McV is, but it's exciting. And then we close the show talking about change and tips and tactics for grassroots organizing that you can use where you live right now. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now by a spectacular guest you're going to love hearing from, Daniel Haynes of Zero Two Three. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Kristen. Great to hear. I'm so glad you're here. Zero to three, people, we are not talking about going zero miles per hour to three miles per hour. We're not talking about any other kind of zero to three than the birth of children at zero to three. And can you talk about why that's such an important time to focus on? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you Zero to three focuses on children in the first three years of life, which are really just a critical time for early brain development. Um, During those first three years of life, babies' brains are making more than one million neural connections every second. And that is really building the foundation uh, that their future learning, their future development is all going to really depend on. We know that that foundation is strengthened by really strong interactions with families, um, caregivers, early educators, and community sports. Um, And so we work to support investments in programs like childcare, home visiting, paid family medical leave, all the supports that families and babies and toddlers need to make sure that their children have a really strong start in life and, and build a strong foundation for their futures. So when we're talking about the age zero to age three years old and all that brain development, all that's happening to really set the foundation so that people can thrive later in life. What are the most important public policies that every single person should know about? Absolutely. And I think a huge one is childcare. I know that's going to be a lot of what we talk about today, but families need access to high quality, affordable childcare that meets their children's developmental needs, has low staff child ratios so that children can have really high quality interactions with their caregivers wherever they are, whether it's a family child care program, center-based program, or home-based program. Uh, and it also helps reduce family stress and support families uh, so that they can work, they can provide for their children, and they can have yeah, security knowing that their children are in a safe, well-taken-care-of place while they're making the money they need to survive. Um, But we also talk about paid family medical leave. Every family should have access to time um, after their child is born to to take care of that child and and to bond with that child, uh, both mothers and fathers in the first. We push for at least 12 weeks paid family medical leave. Ideally, that would be longer. And if you look at other countries that have really robust systems of paid family medical leave, you see even up to a year um, of leave in, in many European nations. And so we're, we're really pushing to have supportive policies across, you know, these are just small examples. You know, we also work on infant and early childhood mental health and providing kind of community-wide supports for 
children's early development tax credits, like the child tax credit, which I know many families benefited from uh, um, last year, the monthly reimbursement um, that allows families to have that additional income. Um, really, any policies that touch on helping relieve families' economic challenges, because we know that they are most acute in those earliest years of children's lives, where many families are at the lower end of their pay um, scales and where you know, they're facing expenses like the incredibly high cost of childcare that rivals the cost of college um, without having time to save up for it uh, in advance. So we we really work to support families across the spectrum with, with the variety of their children's needs. One of the things I want to dive into, because you're such an expert on this and you do so much work on it, is childcare. Now, childcare costs more than college in most states in our nation. And one time there was a New York Times analysis that found that if you started saving up for childcare, like people tell you you're supposed to start saving up for your children's college, you would have to start your savings plan at age seven years old. People, we aren't working and should not be working (laughs) at age seven years old. It's an untenable situation. And in this untenable situation, something that a lot of people don't realize is there is a tremendous large care workforce. The child care workforce is largely women and moms and are paid some of the lowest wages in our country, sometimes around averaging $18,000 a year, so not a living wage. What this means is that there's often a lot of turnover in the child care industry because people can't afford to keep that job a job that they love. So what are some solutions that you see on the horizon for the fact that parents can't afford to pay any more for childcare? Again, already costs more than college. And we most certainly can't pay care workers any less, already some of the lowest paid workers in our country. We're between a rock and a hard place. How do we get out? Well, we came very close last year with the Build Back Better Act. Um, and we had an opportunity to pass transformational investments and childcare and learning to the tune of $400 billion uh, that would have ensured that no family paid more than 7% of their income in childcare, would have ensured that early educators make at least a living wage and, and have a path to pay parity with or, or with um, their peers in, in K-12 uh, educational schools. Um, and I said, we fell one vote short in the Senate of getting this transformational policy passed. Uh, So we can't back away from that as our long-term goal of of really building a system that, you know, we we think of really meeting three specific needs. Um, And the needs of families to have access and a supply of of high quality care that's affordable and that meets their needs, whatever those needs are. Um, Care that meets the needs of our early education workforce. Um, As you said, we have a, a workforce that's predominantly made up of women and women of color who have done tremendous work and in many ways are sacrificing their own livelihoods to, to help care for our communities and, and to allow our economy to function. Um, and we have not compensated them fairly or close to fairly for years. And many of them are leaving the sector and have left the sector because they're experiencing high rates of burnout, high rates of you know challenges meeting their own family's needs. And it's very easy right now to find a job that pays more and is a lot less stressful than working in a childcare facility. Uh, and then also ensuring that they have high quality care for children and, and care that really aligns with what we know um, young children need for their early brain development and really meets those developmental needs. Um, you know, low staff child ratios, again, low group sizes, allowing for those really high quality interactions with with early educators that, that understand how to support young children in their development. And what ways can people help move those important policies forward? We know there's something happening right now in what we're calling the super duck. It's the end of the congressional session at the end of the year. So there's a lot of policies moving forward in the super duck. And then there's also going to be new legislative 
and policies in the new year. Absolutely. Um, we're hoping it is not a lame duck. Um, we're excited that there seems to be an omnibus deal that has been reached um, on the between the House and the Senate appropriations committees. Um, so we're we're really hoping to see an opportunity to increase investment in our existing child care subsidy program this year, the Child Care and Development Block Grant. Um, that program provides subsidies to child care uh, for parents to pay for high quality child care in their communities that meets their needs, um, but it's woefully underfunded. Um, you know, only about 16% of eligible children and families have access to a subsidy through CCDBG. And, you know, the income caps are pretty low. I mean, families under 85% of state and income are eligible at the federal level. Most states set their caps far lower and payment rates through the child care and develop block grants. So the value of those subsidies that families receive are often far lower than the cost of providing quality care. Um, we did see a significant bump for that program during COVID and, and it allowed states to do some really important things to improve their systems to increase provider pay, to reduce co-payments for parents, to take parents off waiting lists and increase access to subsidies. Those, those improvements are all at risk um, if we fail to invest in CCDBG now uh, and, and really increase funding. We, Zero to Three, and I know Moms Rising and, and many of our partners in the early care and education community have called for doubling CCDBG this year. Um, we've seen bipartisan support for, for doubling CCDBG in Congress. Um, we had more than 120 House Democrats and, and I think most of Senate Democrats on a letter earlier this year calling for doubling CCDBG in this year's appropriations bill. And we even had six Republicans uh, put out a letter this summer calling for doubling CCDBG within five years and heard that many would be happy to see that done sooner. So we have bipartisan agreement on needing to enhance our existing program. It's not going to get us all the way there. It's not going to help us realize that vision that Build Back Better would have helped us realize. It's going to prevent us from backsliding further, and our child care system is already in crisis. That crisis is going to get a lot worse in the coming years if we don't invest significantly more federal money in our existing programs and also work to continue stabilizing the child care sector. Uh, one thing that's not really been part of the conversations for this year's omnibus, but is absolutely needs to be on the next Congress's agenda, is heading off the, uh, the child care stabilization cliff that we have coming up. The American Rescue Plan put about $25 billion in stabilization funding to ensure that child care programs could stay open. And we saw more than 200,000 programs across the country benefited from that funding, potentially helping more than 9 million children keep their child care slots. That funding expires at the end of fiscal year 2023, so September 30th of next year. And when that funding expires, we've heard from providers, they're going to have to raise rates on families, they're going to have to cut wages for their staff, or they're going to have to close outright. And that's going to make our existing crisis far worse. So I'm a parent and I'm listening. And I'm like, okay, all of these things need to happen. We need to address this emergency. It's a five alarm emergency. We need to address it right now. Should I pick up my phone and call my member of Congress? Should I talk to my state legislature? What should I do? Like, act, like give our listeners marching orders for what they should do next. Absolutely. Reach out to your members of Congress right now. Tell them that they need to ensure that CCDBG is funded at most robust level as possible, doubling CCDBG would be ideal in this year's omnibus bill. We can't go backwards from the billion dollar increase that was included in both the House and Senate labor age drafts earlier this year. Um, and, and ideally, we need to see that number increase dramatically um, to, to keep us from going backwards. And then share your story. Um, we have a new Congress coming in next year. 
one of the most impactful things that parents can do. And I've seen this day in and day out from zero to three strolling thunder parents who've come and, and met with members of Congress with their babies and toddlers is the impact of, of sharing your story and putting a personal face and a personal connection on these issues with your member of Congress and their staff. So they really, when they're thinking about childcare, when they're thinking about these programs that come up as a line item in a, in a budget bill they're working on, it's not just a number on a page. It's not just you know, and I has to be dotted and a T that has to be crossed. It's a family, it's a face, it's a story, it's a child. And and that story is going to have more of an impact than than any of the work that we can really do. It's it's the most important thing that families can do is make sure their voices are heard, make sure their stories are heard, and and don't let them forget about you and don't let them forget about this issue. Absolutely. And you know, the power of your story, if you're listening, is so, so, so important. Frankly, many of the people who are serving in Congress have not had to deal with a child care crisis. We don't yet have political parity. So our Congress does not look like our country. And that means that your story, I like to think of them as a giant news and information service. You know, like, hey, here's your reality check in the very nicest of ways by saying, did you know that I had to work two jobs just to pay for childcare for my kid, you know, and we shouldn't be working only to pay for childcare. We should be able to get ahead when we're working. So childcare is one of many policies that we need together. It's not just childcare. We need childcare, affordable, accessible, high quality childcare, and we need childcare workers to be paid living wages. We also need paid family medical leave. We need home and community-based services. We need the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. And we need the child tax credit expansion to be continued. All of these things together help lower the wage gaps between moms and non-moms, help get rid of structural discrimination and pay, and really boost our economy overall. And sometimes people say, it's too many things that you're asking for. And we say, no, it's not. It's not too many things. It's just the right amount of things. We can do lots of things at the same time. And what are your thoughts to that? Absolutely agree. And I agree. We, we've heard that it's too many things. We've heard you're asking for too much. But it, I feel like there's such a disconnect between our rhetoric about wanting families to work, wanting to you know have a robust economy where people are you know, pulling their weight. And you hear this rhetoric quite a bit from people who don't support things like child care policy or the child tax credit. And one of the things we like to say is these policies reduce barriers to work. Um, child care, obviously, but even the child tax credit. You know, one, one issue that's come up a lot in the child tax credit debate this year is work requirements, whether the credit is fully refundable and whether children and families that have no income um, or no working parent can benefit from the credit. Um, we know, you know, looking at studies of how babies and toddlers thrive, we know that that additional income in the earliest years of a child's life is absolutely critical and absolutely supportive and helps set that child up for future success and, and helps reduce family stress. But it also reduces barriers to work. I've I've talked to parents who've participated in Zero to Three Strolling Thunder who, you know, told me they were able to get to school. They were able to get to their job because the child tax credit payment helped them to make a payment on their car or make a needed repair on their car or keep their rent, uh, pay their rent, keep their lights on, pay their heating bill. All of these things that uh, if you are not able to have stable housing, if you don't have access to transportation, if you don't have access to childcare when your costs are going up, um, you're not going to be able to do these things that you know, many lawmakers say you should be doing to be, quote, deserving of support. We we don't buy that rhetoric that, you know, any that work is the only piece necessary to be deserving of support. Um, parenting is also work. It's it's critical work. It is absolutely crucial to our functioning of society. Um, but for from the baby perspective, 
providing that support to parents is critical. And babies don't care if you're working. Babies don't care if you are, you know, seen as deserving by our political class. Babies need that support. Babies need parents who are not stressed about whether they're going to be able to keep the lights on, whether they're going to be able to keep food on the table. And when we support families, when we support babies, we we support our future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on Daniel Hinton's Zero to Three. Please sign up with Zero to Three, support Zero to Three, get involved and stay involved. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Kristen. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about the economy, inflation, jobs numbers, and why worker power is essential for an inclusive multiracial democracy. We'll be back in a quick flash. with me, Kristen Ralphing Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by an amazing, spectacular, wonderful guest. You are going to love, love, love Angela Hanks with Demos. Welcome, Angela. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad you're on because I'd love to talk about what you're doing in terms of the economy, change, and what's happening right now across our country. What are the biggest upcoming actions and demands that you're seeing? Yeah, you know, I think the last couple of uh, weeks, some of what we've been thinking about is the results from the 2022 elections and what it means for the future of our economy and democracy. So um, I think something that was really encouraging coming out of that, of course, you saw um, uh, uh, candidate wins uh, in many places, but really the ballot initiatives, I think, demonstrate that folks are really hungry for um economic change and for a real paradigm shift on the way we think about the economy. We saw wins um, on on things that influence our economic lives, like wins on abortion access, wins on uh, collective bargaining, uh, wins on voting rights, um, which all signal that people are really hungry for um, more action on the economy, um, more even more than they've seen so far. So that's something that I'm finding really encouraging in this moment. I find it encouraging too. And what also I found encouraging is that the people are defining economy in broader ways than they have in the past. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, what do we mean when we say the word economy? Yeah, I mean, the economy is really everything, right? But really, ultimately, it's us. It's the people that drive it, that make it work, the workers, the consumers, um, which we are all both, <laughs> um, who who drive it forward and, and make decisions about how what our economy looks like every day. And so, you know, that it means that everything is an economic issue, whether it's things like voting rights, aborting, abortion access, those are deeply economic issues. It's not just questions of um, you know, the stock market or uh, things that are really more esoteric for, for most everyday folks. And when we're talking about the economy, we're also talking about bodily autonomy, about care. We're talking about jobs and the whole ecosystem around jobs. And how have you seen that reflected in the data that you're seeing after the election? Yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, something that we know coming out of maybe most election cycles is just the way that women of color, um, especially black women show up in elections um, because black women know and understand um, the deep implications that elections have and the widespread uh, um, economic issues that are implicated uh, through those elections, whether it's abortion access, whether it's having, um, you know, some of the legislative priorities that were elevated over the last two years and acted into law, um, whether it's seeing the funds that are um, 
that have been legislated out into the world, getting into their communities and affecting their lives, their children's lives. Um, and so I think that really showed up this time around um, that you saw people really thinking about um, economic issues as something that were sort of greater than some of what we heard, I think, in the media around inflation. It really was this sort of broader set of issues that affect people's daily lives. What do you think should be the response of both Congress and the administration to what you're seeing about the economy? I would say two things. I think people want to see their lives improved. And again, I think some of the ballot initiatives demonstrate that people want to see uh, change. They want to move forward. They want progress. Um, so that's one. I think that's some kind of good bolstering of some of where uh, the administration has tried to go. And I think evidence that they should continue to push on some of the things that we haven't gotten yet, including things like childcare. Um, so that's one. Um, and two, I think it also means that we shouldn't be afraid to have bold policies, um, despite you know some of the um, this moment that we're in with inflation and thinking about uh, um, you know some of what the Fed is doing to actually make it harder for people to get and keep jobs. Um, and so, to me, it's a, a really strong signal to to keep going to do more because it's both popular and necessary in this moment. People are just as worried about their employment, their livelihood, their ability to care for their families, their ability to have health care, their ability to collectively bargain, to have bodily autonomy, as they are about any other economic issues. And that really came through. I love that it came through because that's what I hear from our members across the country. That's what we see around us. I was like, finally, finally, it's coming through. Speaking of that, what's your analysis? I have been hearing a lot of good things about your analysis. Um, based on the growth of organizing in companies and industries that have been traditionally left out of the labor movement, like Starbucks and Amazon and domestic worker and adjuncts and people who are teaching at colleges and universities, what's happening? Yeah, you know, I mean, in some respects, we're in a unique moment, right? We just um, have had this moment where we are uh both had the acute uh, beginning of the pandemic and are still living through it. Um, and that has had, I think, effects in the labor market that we haven't seen in our entire lives and I think hopefully never see again, right? Um, but there are some interesting things that have come out of this moment in the labor market. And one is that workers um, have more power than they did um, you know, two, three years ago um, for a variety of reasons, right? Um, I think one, uh, workers started demanding for their working conditions to improve at the beginning of the pandemic because all of a sudden it brings them to stark relief what a bad job is when um, you're being paid minimum wage and not having access to the uh, adequate protective uh, equipment in order to do your job. And you're really being asked to put your life on the line every day uh, for 7.25 an hour. So that that alone, I think, uh, helped embolden workers to uh, to organize, to demand more from their workplaces, for sure. Um, and two, as the labor market has been getting tighter, uh, coming out of the really high unemployment numbers that we saw in the beginning of the pandemic, um, that also means that workers have greater bargaining power. Um, and they're using that to organize, to uh, demand changes to their workplaces that were frankly long overdue. Um, and so that has been really exciting to see. And I think the most exciting part of that is, is actually what you pointed out, is that we're seeing union organizing in new industries industries, right? So like we are seeing uh, in retail, in the service sector, um, not traditionally the industries that we all think about as sort of uh, the 
kind of proving ground for, for unions, right? This has not been uh, the area where they have traditionally been thought of, but it is the area where folks are uh, uh, acting more and more, warehouse workers. Um, and in part, you know, it's for a few reasons. One, again, these are some of the, you know, hardest hit jobs by the pandemic and also some of the jobs where, um, you know, there's really low wages and low job quality, which has a huge impact on workers' decision to organize in this moment in particular. Um, and then two, um, these are also industries that are often dominated by women, especially women of color. And just thinking about the havoc that the pandemic uh, wreaked on uh, the lives of women, women, women of color, it's no surprise that those would be the folks who are uh, on the front lines of organizing in this moment because they acutely understand um, what the costs are when your employer exploits you um, or creates unsafe working conditions for you or that you're being underpaid or undervalued in your work. Um, and so that has been really exciting. And I think for a few reasons, one, certainly we want to see more uh, more women and more women of color in the labor in the labor movement in general. But two, it also has a sh uh, an effect on what you bargain for, right? Like once there are more women organizing, it is both about wages and working conditions, but the definition of working conditions really expands too, right? You can think about childcare and paid leave as priorities. Um, for people who are often the primary caretaker or primary breadwinner in their house. And so that that is really exciting because I think it both is long overdue among a population that really richly deserves to be paid and respected more. And two, because I'm really excited to see what this new crop of workers does with that bargaining power in the future. Absolutely. It's an exciting time. What do you think is next in this organizing moment? And this is really important. How can people who are listening to her like, oh, I'm fired up. I want to get involved. Like there's many ways to get involved. So what's your advice? So this is a really exciting moment that we're in for all the reasons that I mentioned. And I just want to be really clear that it is it is in some ways a, a moment that has come to us through a confluence of events that may not happen again in the near future. And so I think the biggest thing that I'm thinking about in this moment is how do we make this change durable? How do we use this as an opportunity, as a moment to really build and shift power to the folks who are doing that power building themselves right now? Um, and do that in the long term so it doesn't go away when we have a recession or when the unemployment rate ticks up to four or five percent, um, which is, I think, some of the risk that we have now, that there is this sort of unique moment of worker power that could go away at any moment, depending on the tightness of the labor market, which is, you know, just, I think, really a bit of an indictment on the laws and policies that we have undergirding our labor market overall. So I think the main thing is one, you're just really excited to, to see continued organizing. Um, again, we're in this moment, we should be taking advantage of it, work and unionizing workplaces, especially in these unusual places, because there is an opportunity at this moment. But two, we also need policy change. And there are a lot of opportunities here. So on the federal level, there's uh, the PRO Act, which uh, was introduced in the last, soon to be the last Congress, <laughs> um, that would uh, protect the right to organize. There are also uh, state level opportunities like the ballot initiative that I mentioned in Illinois that protected the right to collectively bargain. A lot of states have made it harder to collectively bargain by passing anti-worker laws. And so being able to take moves like they have in Illinois to actually unwind those laws and make those states more friendly to collective bargaining, to worker voice, to expanding um, democracy in that state as, a, as an extension um, is, is really critical. Um, so I think those are the two things, those those policy opportunities um, and, uh, you know, again, that on the ground organizing and advocacy um, that folks can do both in their workplaces and their communities. Love it. And the next question is really important. How can they get involved with what you're doing in your organization? 
Oh, yes. So you can find us at www.demos.org um, if you want to learn more about our work. Um, we are focused on the economy and democracy and really the intersection between those two things. Um, and some of what we talked about today um, is, is really deeply directly implicated in our work. We want to build um, a multiracial inclusive democracy and economy, and we can't do that if workers don't have power and if we don't have worker power as a counter uh, agent to uh, rising corporate influence that fuels worker exploitation. So um, please find our work there. Um, we're also on uh, Twitter at uh, demos underscore org um, and look forward to continuing the conversation. I know. I'm really excited. I wanted to make sure we got that in. We have like one minute left. So I wanted to make sure we got that in because I want everybody to join, support, be involved with Demos. What keeps you going? What's bringing you hope in this moment? Is it these rising new labor movements? I think it's it's the labor movements, but it's also this sort of moment of uh, people in communities across the country building and shifting power. Um, that I think is a model for certainly for the work that Demos does. Like that is something that we want to support, foster, and develop in communities across the country because it gets us wins on voting rights. It gets us wins on uh, collective bargaining. It gets us wins on abortion access. We know that when the folks who uh, uh, in communities come together, um, that we can win fights that we know are popular, that we are often uh, disadvantaged at um, because uh, there are sort of politicians or corporate actors that are making it less possible for us to have the things that we say we want and need. So I am excited about sort of the groundswell of movement organizing work that has led to the moment that we're in. Certainly, um, again, this is a moment, but it has uh, um, the foundation has been laid long before this moment that we're in right now. Um, so that is really exciting. I, I hope that continues. And I know that we're really ready and eager to do what we can as a think tank that works really deeply with movement um, to do what we can to help uh, fuel that progress in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all oh, that you God. do. Thank you for bringing, spreading, sharing hope and power, people, and power. We're not just about hope. We're about power. Um, and worker power is so important. Um, so thank you. Thank you. And we hope to talk again soon. Sounds great. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about McV. Wondering what that is? You're going to have to tune in. We'll be back in just a moment. Through with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by Avery Pakluis of First Focus. We are so excited to have you here, and we're so excited to talk with you about something that has an acronym that I can't even pronounce. I'm sure there is an actual fun way of saying this, but I'll tell our listeners what the acronym is, and then we can guess. M-I-E-C-H-V. Guessing what that is? What is it? Thank you, Avery, to give us the scoop. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's great to be here. Um, that acronym has tripped up many people, many members of Congress and many others. So um, it is pronounced very officially McV, and it stands for the Maternal, Infant and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program. And why is it so important? I want to talk about it. I remember when I had my kids, the nurse coming to our house, i.e. home visiting, weighing mm -hmm. my baby, making sure that everything was okay, making sure that the breastfeeding was established and, you know, seeing if we had any health needs. And it was really, really helpful because obviously it's not the easiest thing to leave a house with an infant to go someplace. So can you share a little bit about this program and what's happening with it? 
Absolutely. So home visiting, for those of you who don't know, is it sometimes looks how Kristen just described it. Um, it can also look look different. And in it in its essence, it pair home visiting programs pair families who are looking for some additional support or mentoring um, with trained home visitors. These home visitors can be nurses, as Kristen just mentioned. They can be social workers. They can be early childhood educators. They can be trained parents. Um, and these home visitors work with and and meet with families usually inside their homes. And this can start prenatally, depending on the program, um, through pregnancy and all the way up to the, their child's kindergarten entry. Um, and home visiting has any number of positive outcomes. Some some of these are improved maternal and child health, the prevention of child maltreatment, um, increased family economic self-sufficiency, a reduction in crime and intimate partner violence, and the promotion and, and of child development and school readiness. So we're looking at a host of, of benefits that are great for a child, great for a family, and truly for society as a whole. Um, I certainly wish that I had had access to a home visitor um, after having my children. And I think many people can benefit from the help that this program, that these kinds of programs can provide. Now, McVie itself, M-I-E-C-H-V, is the um, federally funded home visiting program. So there are state funded programs, but McVie is the federal money that goes towards home visiting programs. And McVie uh, dollars go to states, tribes, and territories. And those states, tribes, and territories can use that money to establish home visiting programs. These are, um, these are evidence-based programs and the programs that states and, and tribes and territories have created have supported kids and their families for now over a decade and have allowed home visiting to expand in states to serve more children and families. Why is anyone opposed to this? Why does it not just pass? Yeah. I mean, like you hear about this, you experience this, you have a child, you realize that there's this incredible return on investment for home visiting, like incredible. We just heard all of the return on investment for home mm -hmm. visiting. It saves lives, people. It saves lives. It saves later doctor costs. It saves so much. And I, it's just is really interesting to me. And I say interesting in quotes that every single member of Congress isn't like, of course, we're just going to do this right now. Now, I want to put this in perspective. Why is this a crisis? The United States of America is the only country that of industrialized nations tracked by the World Health Organization where maternal mortality, meaning people dying in or after childbirth, is going up, not down. We have more people dying after childbirth, not less. And we're the only industrialized nation where that's happening. And Black moms are three to four times as likely to die in childbirth as white moms. And this is a ridiculous, outrageous, awful, awful, awful experience. Of course, like this should not be happening. At the same time, infant mortality is still a big crisis in the United States of America as well. If we have maternal mortality rising, we are also having issues with infant mortality. An easy way to address issues of people not having access to be able to get to healthcare is to bring healthcare to people. And we need to immediately. So why is every member of Congress having to still be lobbied? I'm like, hello. What's happening? <laughs> Kristen, you said that so well. Thank you. Um, you know, McVie over the course of its lifetime, it was it was established during the yeah, by the Affordable Care Act, and it has experienced some pretty incredible bipartisan support, more so than a lot of other programs. Um, and so it's really benefited from benefited from that. However, it currently at its current funding level serves less than five percent of eligible families. 
Um, so there are thousands and thousands of other children and families out there who could benefit from McVie. And, you know, when we talk to Congress about this program, we don't find anyone who says, oh, I don't like that program. I don't, you know, that it doesn't work. Um, we find lots of support. It costs money. And so there's always a debate about about the cost, but um, we we are we feel like it's a pretty unusual program in that it has over the years experienced great bipartisan support. Two weeks ago, the House of Representatives passed a McVie reauthorization bill named for late, the late Congresswoman Jackie Wolorski by an overwhelming and bipartisan vote of 390 to 26. And so that is a huge statement. We don't see votes like that very often um, in the House or Senate. And so we are continuing to push Congress to 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 keep that momentum going, to include a reauthorization of the McVie program in this year-end package that they're working on now um, with as much funding as we can possibly get included. And I think we're getting good feedback, um, which is really encouraging, but we are still pushing um, to, to get that included until the very last second, because you just never know. But, um, to answer your question, it does have great bipartisan support and, you know, we, we wish it didn't even have to, we didn't have to go through this every five years or so, but, but we do. And, um, you know, we are encouraged, but still not, not, not assuming there's a win yet. We're keeping up the pressure. And that is where I was going. How can people help keep up the pressure? Great question again. Um, so we have uh, first focus on children as a member of the Home Visiting Coalition, which is a, a large group of, of organizations that are supportive of home visiting and of McVie in particular. And we have some talking points and social media toolkit that we've developed that we can share with um, with all of you. And we are asking advocates to reach out to their members of Congress in this last week here, this last sprint. Um, we uh, or in particular targeting House and Senate leadership of Republican House Senate leadership, as well as um, Senate Finance Committee members. The Senate Finance Committee is where in the Senate this bill, um, this program is authorized. And so um, we're, we're thanking members of the House for their incredible vote two weeks ago and then pushing on the Senate to continue that work to um, look take that great house bill that was passed and and work from that hopefully add some extra even some extra funding to it um and you know we encourage any of your listeners to please reach out to their members whether they're on that target list or not we want to make sure that this program is on their list of top priorities for the end of the year as you said and we just just said we'd be we're hard pressed to find people who oppose the program but what we now need to do is make sure that that support for the program turns into action. And so there are a lot of competing priorities in the last the last couple of weeks here of the year. And we are determined to make sure that McVie is at the top of that list and doesn't get left behind in an end of year package. And like if you pick up the phone and you want to call your member of Congress, I think what's really hard is to like, what do I say in two seconds? Because listeners, of course, you're not going to talk with your member of Congress. You're going to talk with their staff. So you're leaving a message, which is great. They count those messages. Those messages are really important. Should they say, hi, I'm for McVie right now? What should they say? Like, what is the one liner that you would say to a staff person for a member of Congress? Great question. Uh, we've got talking points, which are longer than one line. So I'll give you the <laughs> truncated version. Uh, McVie enjoys strong bipartisan support. It is so important to children and families, and it must be reauthorized by the end of this year or else it will expire. I mean, that's another thing I don't think I've really hit on yet is um, 
funding for this program will end. And so we cannot let that happen. That is not good for the stability of states, territories, and and um, and tribes for their planning. And it is not good for home visitors, for the work, home visiting workforce um, to not feel that they've got a stable job. And it is not good for families to think this really important relationship that I have with my home visitor is threatened right now and, and could possibly could possibly end. So the one or two lines is McVie enjoys strong bipartisan support. Please support children and families by reauthorizing this vital program. And they'll know what you're talking about when you say McVie. You don't have to well, memorize what that acronym means. It's like not. McVie, McVie, yay, McVie. You can write it down, McVie. You don't even have to spell it correctly. One last question. Care workers are often woefully underpaid. Um, that needs to change. We need living wages. Is there anything about that in McVie? Absolutely. That is, I mean, much like what we see in the childcare workforce, the the um, home visiting workforce, McVie or otherwise, is largely overwhelmingly made up of women, and many of them are underpaid. And so, an increase in funding for this program is is so important in order to try to attack that problem in the home visiting um, on the home visiting front. The House bill has a, a new set aside. Um, a small one, but it's a little bit of additional support for the home visiting workforce. So I think there's an acknowledgement by Congress that the early learning workforce, whether that be a childcare worker, a home visitor, or otherwise, um, that that workforce is under intense pressure and stress, and are they're generally woefully underpaid for the incredibly vital work that they do. And so there is an acknowledgement. We we are taking the House bill as at least an acknowledgement from Congress that that is a problem um, that needs to be addressed. You know, we, as I said, the McVie currently funds less than 5% of eligible, uh, serves less than 5% of eligible families. So some of that additional funding in the bill is certainly to go to increase the number of families and children served. But some of it, we believe and hope that will also go to increasing wages and compensation and support for home visitors. Love, love, love. I have a final last question. What gives you hope right now to keep pushing you know again i the positive response that we get when we talk about mcvee members of congress know what we're talking about and a lot of them because advocates on the ground have done such an incredible job a lot of them can recall a home visit that they've perhaps accompanied um, a home visitor on or at least a meeting that they've had or their district staff or their state staff has had with a home visiting advocate with a home visitor themselves with a home visiting model and so the widespread knowledge and support of this program makes it unique and we're not taking that for granted we we know how it, how we got to that point and that's because of all the work that's been going on on the ground at the state and local level to engage members of congress and so i think we feel hope and some confidence that um that this is going to get done but again we can't take that for granted and we really we need everyone who is who has any interest in this program or has ever met a child or a family in their lifetime to to support McVie and and make sure that Congress follows through on the commitment they've shown to date. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all you do. Everybody, please get involved with First Focus and stay involved with First Focus. And thank you, Avery, for being on with us today. Thanks, Kristen. Don't go away. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back with grassroots power building tips that you can use wherever you are, whenever you want to use them. We'll be back in just a quick moment.
me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner. We are joined right now by a nation-lifting, world-shaping, spectacular, brilliant organizer and strategist, Monifa Bendele of Moms Rising. Welcome, Monifa. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. I was thinking, what do we want to talk about today? And I was thinking, as the year comes to a close, one of my most exciting things to talk with you about is tips and tactics for people to make change, needed change, where they are when that change is needed. And I was like, oh, this could be a really fun conversation because we don't talk a lot about tactics. And so I just wanted to sort of hear what you think. I mean, starting from a lot of people, you know, are going through their daily lives. And how do you figure out what you want to try to make change on? Well, definitely the issues that impact you. You know, I think that the tactic that Moms Rising uses effectively is uplifting the stories of everyday people and how we're navigating all of the different systems that there are. And so when we tell our stories, we're actually doing a really powerful thing. People think that telling their story may be like complaining or whining or no one wants to hear your story. And that's just not true. Hearing people's stories are the ways that we understand systemic problems. And then it's a part of the path to being able to solve those problems and to fix those systems. So I think it's really important for people to know that, you know, everyone plays a different role. Some people write letters, some people are protesters, some people are advocates in the halls of Congress. And everyone though has a story that they can tell and that they can uplift to help move us forward. It's so true. And a lot of times people think their story doesn't matter. It's not important, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're just Mm -hmm. alone. And there's been a lot of blame to individuals for not being able to figure out how to make everything work in an impossible situation when nothing can work. Um, how, how, How can you share a little bit more about like, why do stories actually matter? Because I really think it disrupts the ideas that people have about why people are in a particular situation and who is in a particular situation. So, for example, this year, especially this fall, um, Moms Rising lifted up stories of people who are seeking abortions because there's this larger narrative of who is seeking abortions, not being people who are already mothers, not being people who are actually putting the interests of their children and families first. And so when we cast a wide net and say, hey, everybody, here's our platform, speak up, everyone share their story, we found that our stories were consistent with the actual stats, which is that most people who seek abortion care are already mothers and that we do it for a number of reasons really to that connects back to making sure that we have healthier and stronger families, that we're healthy and can be there for our families and for our communities overall. And so every time we share our story, it really always disrupts people basically telling the story of how issues impact people who are not the people, right? <laughs> who the stories are, that who are impacted by the issue, you know, people who are creating the narratives around abortion care rooms full of men who've never had an abortion, right? Who don't have any idea what that's about. And so we disrupt that when we tell our stories. Same for paid family leave, same for childcare, same for what is safe and healthy for our children in schools. You know, there's this narrative out there that parents want to have us not teach about true history and accurate history, that parents want to ban books from the school libraries, that parents want attacks on LGBTQ 
students and that parents want our schools to be militarized. But when we open up our forums and we say, okay, actual real parents out there, tell your stories, it disrupts, you know, this very carefully crafted narrative that's not based in facts that people use to push an agenda. So our stories are tremendously powerful in ways that sometimes we don't think about it, right? I know. I mean, and it's been so eye-opening to me because when I first started working with Moms Rising, I was like, oh, a stories program, that's, you know, kind of nice. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize the tremendous power of my story, your story, our stories together. And one of the things they do is they also show that when so many people are having the same types of crisis at the same time, it's not an epidemic of personal failures that can be blamed on individuals. It shows a need for structural change and that need for structural change can be solved together. One of the things I loved about what you just said is, you know, the people closest to the problem often are, and usually I should say, closest to the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've never experienced a crisis of childcare or a lack of bodily autonomy, then you really don't know what happens. And there are unintended consequences to legislation that's for us without us. And do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the issues we really work on is trying to stem this rising crisis in maternal mortality. Um, You know, the United States is one of the most, not one of, it was actually the most dangerous place to give birth in the developed world amongst wealthy nations. And there were a lot of narratives about why that was happening. You know, it was about people's uh, level of um, income, people's level of education, people's care for their own health. And so these were very dangerous, dangerous narratives that prevented us from putting in place really common sense policies, you know, rooted in like evidence-based studies, which is that you should have equity in hospitals. People should be treated in a culturally competent way. People giving birth should be listened to about what they're experiencing in their bodies. People should have access to birth workers like doulas and midwives, like all the stuff that we know and we know. Um, But this narrative out there prevented us from really being able to push these issues in a way that would allow us to do something about this rising crisis and preventable maternal deaths. And so sharing stories, which was really how we launched our maternal justice program um, for year, five years ago now, um, really kind of cracked open that narrative and said, no, actually, it kind of doesn't matter if you are a working class woman in a town in the Midwest, or you are Serena Williams, one of the most world-class athletes on the planet earth, you are experiencing a problem giving birth. And the problem is systemic racism. The problem is sexism and how that intersects specifically on black people who are giving birth. And then also a healthcare system that is not tuned to listening to women and paying attention to what we're saying about what's going on with our bodies. And when we shared those stories and got in stories from celebrities and everyday moms, it really pushed a dialogue in a way that helped us to pass some groundbreaking legislation in 2017 when nothing else was passing, which was the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act. Being able to put in place maternal mortality review committees in every state, which is what that act did, has now brought us to a point where we have actual moms and doulas and midwives on panels in states looking at the data as it's coming in and saying, hey, 
this is a systemic issue. There's not like all these mothers are doing the wrong thing while they're pregnant and then dying when they give uh, go into labor. That is not the case. These deaths are preventable and we can fix them systemically. And so that's like a huge win. And it was a campaign that literally started with a storybook. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? And the storybooks also change the narrative. The storybooks and your story who are listening changes how the media reports about things. The media still doesn't reflect who we are as a country in terms of who reporters are. Um, yeah. It's not parody in the media yet. And so a lot of members of the media, just like members of Congress, have no idea about the true impacts of a lot of the policies that they're reporting on. So having people able to share their stories with the media is super powerful in terms of um, changing the national narrative, which then push is, of course, Congress to take action. Um, what other tips? So stories is a big tip. And people, if you want to share your story, what should they do? Go to momsrising.org. You go right there and click to share our, um, to join, first of all, our website. And then you'll also see links to share your story on our different issues. But it's really important to click that link and join our mailing list and become a member because you will get actions every week every week and you can look towards the end of the week where you get like a roundup of all the actions we've had that week and typically in addition to asking you to sign on to a letter for one of our policy priorities we will ask you to share your story and those stories don't just sit on a website somewhere our storytellers have gone to state houses to give testimony they've gone to capitol hill they've sat with the administrations and presidential administrations to share their stories they go on the media to share their stories in both local papers and on national news. And so, you know, share your story there. It may be the one that we really need to make a strong point and to make a strong case for an important piece of policy that's going to help all moms. And then one of the things we have just three minutes left that I've been asking people because it's, you know, near the end of the year. What is giving you hope right now? Hope for change. And when I talk about hope, I don't mean like empty hope. I mean, like, powerful hope, like hope that powers the work that makes the change we need happen. What's bringing that to you? Well, you know, 2022 is really hard. We are still in a pandemic. We are still really suffering from a lot of the things that were put in place from the previous presidential administration. Um, we're still experiencing a great deal of systemic racism and sexism. But when we look at how powerful we have grown, you know, really in the last decade, our organizations and our membership groups like Moms Risings, voices are getting stronger and more powerful. And we got so close this year to passing groundbreaking package of legislation that included childcare, paid family medical leave. I mean, really, if you just took all of the, the maternal health bills, all of the Moms Rising policy priorities and you balled them up into one big power punch from moms, we basically almost won that. We only lost by one vote. But even though we lost by one vote on the federal level, and I think that that's a huge win too, because it's not like we lost by a million votes, we lost by just one vote. It gave a strong signal to states and municipalities. And we're starting to see a shift in those policies towards a more progressive direction on every level, um, you know, more and more states are looking at paid family leave. More and more states are looking at childcare and doing things to access to open up um, pre-K to, to third, 
three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And all of that is a testament to that mighty work. And so with that, I'm like, if we get that close, I have a tremendous amount of hope that we can take it all across the finish line next time. I think we can too. I think we're going to double down. We're going to rise up. We're going to create massive change, people. I am ready. Not really for 2023. I'm almost ready. I think I need to have some rest and rejuvenation. I had to catch myself right there. I'm ready for some rest and rejuvenation to end 2022. And then I'm ready to double down on standing up in 2023. I haven't figured out what my rest and rejuvenation is going to be yet because it's been so busy. But, um, you know, I'm imagining some hot chocolate, you know, some TV that I don't ever watch. What are you thinking about rest and rejuvenation? Do you have anything, your eye on anything for the end of the year? Yes, I do. I want to actually plug another work <laughs> that's kind of Moms Rising related. But I want to like unplug from screen time. I was introduced to an amazing book. People should check it out dopamine nation and it just talks about like our mental health and how we we don't need to just relax our bodies we also need to relax our mind <laughs> relax our minds which is something that we don't think about right we think as long as we're lying down or sitting down that we're relaxing but a lot of times we're just still working 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 and scrolling 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 so i'm going to take some time during my ra- uh, relax my rest and rejuvenation and my relaxing to also unplug. I love that. That is such good advice. People, read Dopamine Nation and then think about setting a time period for yourself to unplug. You can have like a emergency number for people to reach you. <laughs> you can, you know, still do that. But, you know, get off social media for a while. It's really hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Really no, hard. no one has a landline anymore. So you're like, I have to have my cell phone in my hand. But yeah. yes. Do it, everyone. Do it, do it, do it. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for moving change. Thank you for everything. Have a great, great holiday. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom, we'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight. We're gonna fight.